It may seem counterintuitive, but history has repeatedly proven that it's far easier to conquer something than to control something. Our previous episode referenced Alexander the Great quite a bit, and while he was an elite conqueror, his empire disintegrated upon his death. Likewise, the United States, the world's hegemon, found it quite easy to take over Iraq and Afghanistan during the horrifically named War on Terror. Yet Americans were distraught when Iraq later politically booted us out, and Afghanistan, as it has to so many other major powers, grinded us down until we retreated, allowing the previous government of the Taliban to restore their rule. The ultimate lesson, however, was Vietnam, as America's failure to win the hearts and minds of the citizens of South Vietnam meant that our conscripted troops never had a chance of establishing long-term influence over the development of what is now a communist nation. Genghis Khan spent 20 years systematically destroying and then absorbing the warring clans of the Mongolian steppe. This new Mongol nation, as Temujin referred to it, was always destined to be fragile. In order to prevent them from reverting back to their inter-clan blood feuds, he needed to direct them against an outside enemy. He attempted to do the same with his sons. At one point, far in this story's future, Genghis brought his male children together after their long-running private dispute over succession spilled out into public view. The great Khan demanded their attention, grabbed an arrow, and snapped it easily in two. He then proceeded to grab a bundle of arrows and tried with all of his might to snap them in half. Despite his legendary strength, he couldn't. Through this demonstration, he attempted to convince his sons that united they would be able to do anything, but individually they could be easily snapped in two. The united Mongolian nation was about to prove to the world that they had formed an unbreakable bundle of arrows. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon Mongolia's most notorious conqueror, Genghis Khan. Episode number three, The Conquest of Jin China. The Mongols' neighbors were well aware of the danger that a united Mongolian front posed. For centuries, they had worked to fragment the tribes by encouraging civil war via continuous blood feuds. In this way, the tribes were kept weak, allowing them to be manipulated or put down before they ever became a risk. This doesn't mean that there weren't incursions outside of Mongolia, however. The Chinese had already built the Great Wall of China before Genghis's era. In fact, it was created in large part to keep the steppe people out of their territory. But the version of the wall at this point in time was not the majestic wonder of the world that it is today. This version of the wall consisted merely of unconnected earthen walls that arose out across northern China. These were easily overrun by concentrated Mongolian assault. Marco Polo and other contemporary accounts from the latter 14th century fail to even mention the existence of a Great Wall. Thus, it is fair to say that none of what would befall the Jin Chinese should have been surprising. Remember, at one point, they had even aided the rise of Temujin, using him to weaken the Tatars, whom they viewed as more threatening. Ultimately, it appears that the Jin Chinese fell for what is one of the least correct axioms of all time. As it turns out, the enemy of my enemy is rarely my friend. What we think of as China has not yet formed during this time period. At this point in history, the modern-day People's Republic of China was broken up into six distinct territories, Jiajia, Song China, Tufan, the land of Tibet, Dali, and the land of the Jin Chinese. Song China is the most culturally Chinese of the six areas. 
that dynasty held on for a total of 300 years, outliving the Khan of Khans by 52. The Jin, whose land comprised the northeast of what is now China, would become the first true target of the Khan's expansion plans. But as I said, the Jin weren't the first outsiders added to the United Mongol nation. Prior to this war, the Uyghurs, an ethnic group that hailed from northwest China, voluntarily joined up. One of the easiest methods to win the hearts and minds of those that you conquer is to have someone else do the dirty work for you. At the moment of recording this, the United States is concluding the longest war in its history, the Afghan War. Although I have no better solution for the country, it's easy to speculate that the war will not be counted as a success by historians. The key to Afghanistan was to win the hearts and minds of the people, to prove to them that we were different and offered a better future for their people than the previous government, the Taliban. Before you install a new government, you have to sweep away the remains of the old. That typically means full-scale violent eradication. For the Afghan war, we utilized tribes that held grudges against the Taliban as our boots on the ground. Doing so was intelligent and saved the lives of American citizens. But their main task was to liberate the people. Those that lived on the fringes of the Taliban's Afghanistan, those who were willing to sign over their lives in order to destroy their government, were made up of the most decent of humanity. In some regards, it might have been easier for the Afghan people to accept us as their liberators than the alliance of tribes that we put together to do it for them. In their conflict, the Uyghurs were the Mongols' boots on the ground. The loyalty that these people showed resulted in the Uyghurs being allowed to return to their ancestral homeland, a homeland that they are currently fighting for. This distinction for the Uyghurs was unique, as the Khan regularly dispersed ethnic groups to serve in other lands, much in the same way that Alexander the Great shored up loyalty during his conquests. Those that governed weren't always the ones responsible for the violence that preceded them. The belief was that their governance might be an easier pill to swallow. The Uyghurs brought a host of skills to the Mongolians and served as generals, judges, scribes, spies, and tax collectors. Besides absorbing the land of the Uyghurs, Temujin attacked the Tangut peoples of northern China before moving on to the Jin. Jia Jia, which referred to itself as the Great State of White and High, boasted a population of 3 million, roughly 2 million more than the Mongols could claim. British historian Frank McLinn explains this invasion which began in 1207 with the metaphor of Genghis as a shark. He writes, Their principal aim was to raise revenue. Genghis's new militarized state was very expensive to maintain, and like the shark compelled ever to move forwards or expire, could maintain itself only by fresh conquests, which brought in fresh tribute. The Mongols had long raided Chinese civilizations to secure access to goods that they, as pastoralist nomads, were unable to make for themselves. This time, however, the Mongols were united and organized. In addition to raising revenue, this invasion would also serve the necessary task of bloodying his troops, while allowing him time to practice techniques that he would later use against the Jin, the richest civilization that the Khan was aware of. Conquering Jiajia would also secure western trade routes and thus provide a land route to the heart of the Jin dynasty. Genghis was always able to convince himself of some sort of slight, to serve as the casus belli for war. In this instance, he reminded himself that the Tangrut dynasty of Jiajia had provided shelter for his enemies during the Mongol civil wars. Thus, for supposed revenge and honor, he was compelled to invade. The Tangrut predictably appealed to the Jin for assistance. With the historical gift of hindsight, it's clear the Jin should have supported their traditional ally. Instead of presenting a united front, however, the Jin offered insults rather than aid, while focusing instead on their own conflict against the Song to their south. 
they left the Tangroot as a single arrow in Genghis's hands. The Tangroot in the countryside were promptly overrun and fled to their fortified cities in the face of the Mongol onslaught. The devastation was so bad that they decided to pay an annual tribute to the mobster-esque Mongols rampaging throughout their land. For two years, the payment came on time, and the Mongols were allowed to inspect Tangroot cities from the inside out, which in turn gave them time to figure out the best methods of tearing down walls. The protection payments, however, ceased in 1209, and the Mongols were once again unleashed. They traveled en masse 650 miles in one month, going first around a salt lake and then through an impassable desert. The Khan won a pitched battle and then took the city of Wulahai via vicious house-to-house street fighting. They then proceeded to the capital city of Chengxing, which was accessible via only one defense-laden road. As one would expect, the Mongols were badly outnumbered for this campaign against the Chinese. Estimates place it at 150,000 to only 75,000. They attempted to offset this by choosing the grounds for the fight. For two months, the Khan patiently waited for the army to face him in the mountains away from the walls of the city. But the Tangroot steadfastly refused. Unable to intimidate their opponents into making a mistake, they instead flipped the script, subtly altering their performance from confident conquerors to defeated damsels. Their acting won them the day. Pretending to be supremely frustrated, the Khan's forces visibly began packing up their camps to return home. It was then that Wee Ming, the opposing general, witnessed the orderly Mongols make what he determined to be a fatal mistake. In their hasty departure, they had left too large of a gap between the rear guard and the main force. Wee Ming seized the opportunity and plunged down the slopes to destroy a portion of his enemy. Unfortunately for him, an elite special forces unit had concealed themselves and swallowed the Tangroot army whole, with merely a few losses of their own. The destruction of Wee Ming's army meant that the path to the capital was opened, but the doors remained closed off by huge fortified walls. The Tangroot were not a simple enemy. They had remained in power for 200 years by this point, and the region had an even longer history of productivity, dating back to the Han dynasty in the 3rd century. That dynasty had created an advanced irrigation system that branched off of the Yellow River. If you listened to the previous episode, this is the instance where Genghis Khan destroys the city walls by diverting a river. It was also the moment that he flooded his own war camps on the first attempt. With the second attempt on the verge of succeeding, the emperor of Western Jiajia surrendered. In part to show his deference, and likely in part to provide a hostage, the emperor gave his daughter to Genghis Khan as a bride as well as an extremely large tribute. The conquest of Jiajia was important for a number of reasons. First, it allowed the Khan to try his hand at siege warfare. After his victory, he was able to gain access to Chinese engineers that were able to improve on his initial efforts. Secondly, it showed that the Khan was not going to be satisfied with just Mongolia. He had tasted riches and was no longer satisfied with taking scraps off of the Chinese via constant raids. This campaign showed him that his army could be just as effective against non-Mongols. Third, Western Zia was viewed as the gateway to the larger prize, the Jin Dynasty of Northern China. As an early ally, Genghis had glimpsed the riches of the Jin firsthand. He'd also become keenly aware of how the Jin kept the Mongols fragmented by playing one tribe off of the others. His opportunity for subjugating his southern neighbors came in 1210. A new emperor, Wan Yan Yongji, ascended to the throne and subsequently sent envoys to seek the submission of the Mongols as a vassal state. 
this self-proclaimed golden emperor didn't know it at the time, but he had just made his own fatal mistake. It was part of his honor code that Temujin bowed to no one. He reportedly turned and spat upon hearing the golden emperor's request, a sign of great disgust among the Mongols, and rode off in a rage. He spent days atop a mountain seeking wisdom from the eternal blue sky. The Mongols viewed mountains as spiritual in nature. They were the representation of the male side of God, with water embodying the female. Four days into his meditation, he emerged among his people, proclaiming that the eternal blue sky had promised victory and vengeance. The promise of victory wasn't a surprise. Genghis had actually outlawed any individual ever speaking about defeat. Just the thought could will the event into existence in their mind. One of the things that I've enjoyed the most about studying the Khan is that the simple explanation is typically only a portion of the story. For centuries, the barbarians of the steppe have been simplified down to the level of savages. Genghis Khan had begun setting the stage for this particular invasion long before a new emperor had been named. By this point in his life, Temujin had begun proclaiming himself as the Son of Heaven, a traditional method for medieval leaders to justify their privileged position in society. The Jin Emperor had also claimed a divine mandate. The existence of both claims ensured that one of them had to be lying, and meant that Genghis was always destined to clash with his southern neighbor. Besides guaranteeing victory, he also spoke of a litany of reasons as to why the jinn had to be punished. Most of these were crimes that happened during the Khan's previous 30 years of life, including the regular kidnapping of stepchildren as part of the Chinese slave trade. The final straw likely was not the demand to bow, but instead a simple foresight of the geopolitical situation of the moment. Middle Eastern merchants, a key cog in his spy network, had begun describing to the Khan a massive military buildup by Jin along the border. The Khan always believed in striking first. This particular doctrine ensured that he would spend the rest of his life in perpetual war, including the next 23 years of subduing the Jin. Invading China wasn't a hard sell for the troops. The Mongols were used to war bringing them wealth. The nomadic Mongols had no system of monetized taxation, nor industry. There had to be fears among their leaders that any cessation of conflict, peace as we would call it, would encourage the Mongols to look for enemies internally. The need for more wealth was a leviathan that necessitated constant expansions and therefore new enemies. All of this is not to say that the demands to bow to the emperor were not part of the Khan's calculus. After all, when the Khan was informed by his spies as to who would be the next emperor, he openly referred to him as an imbecile. After all, you had to be stupid to demand the Khan of Khans to bow. The new emperor approached Genghis Khan from what appeared to be a position of strength. In reality, he was a paper tiger. At the beginning of the 13th century, the Jin were hit by twin crises. First was one of their own making. Corruption and continuous war had completely depleted the royal treasury. Secondly, the Yellow River, or Hong He, had changed its course. You might be asking yourself, how could a river change its own course? The loess that gives the Hong He its distinctive yellow color also collects to form natural dams, the buildup and subsequent destruction of which caused the river to continually flood. The locals refer to this river as China's sorrow. Over the course of 2,500 years, the river has produced more than 1,500 floods. In 1194, the river burst its dikes, flooded the Shandong, and permanently diverted itself to the south of the Los Plateau. The loss of the river's irrigation meant that millions starved to death. Genghis was aware of all this internal strife, 
as multiple Jin generals had defected and joined his forces. Still, the invasion was the equivalent of a gambler placing all of their chips in before the flop in a game of Texas Hold'em. The Mongols had a massive force of 110,000, amounting to a pair of pocket aces. But they would be going against a true Chinese dynasty, one that could summon up to 6 million soldiers. Their permanent standing army already outnumbered the Khan's forces 5 to 1. But in putting in all their chips, the Mongols would use the Jin's overconfidence against them. Jebe the Arrow, one of the Khan's top generals, was dispatched first to harry the enemy around the Gobi Desert. This paved the way for one of the most impressive feats in world history, the crossing of the Gobi. The Chinese had long built defenses to protect against invasions from the steppe. This included, but was not limited to, the Great Wall of China. But the Chinese believed that the Gobi was positively uncrossable. I promise that I'll only make this pun once, but faced with the impossible, it was clear that Genghis can. They brought at least 300,000 forces, all of whom needed water and forage. Tens of thousands of sheep and cattle accompanied the army for meat. Melting snow in the early spring collected in hillocks as their main water source, and they followed a detailed route that scouts had already mapped out for the army. The army was split into two major forces that marched separate parallel paths. Although apart, the two forces regularly communicated via messengers. Although they expected resistance, they reached the Great Wall of China without any fighting. The wall was not yet a continuous structure, and the Khan's two armies simply bypassed the walled sections. It might not have made a difference, however, as the finished portions of the walls in this area had been manned by the Zhuyin people, a group that rebelled against the Jin immediately once the fighting began. Proving that both were students of recent history, Genghis attempted to draw the Jin out to fight on the plains while the emperor retreated his forces to the mountains and walled cities. Although it was a sound strategy, this allowed the Mongols to progress deeper into China without suffering any casualties. Jebe and Subadai, another of the Khan's great generals, utilized the Mongols' mobility to defeat isolated fortresses along their path. Proving once again that the Jin dynasty was not loved, Jebe received the governor of Wining who shimmied down a rope in the middle of the night to defect to their side. He was then dispatched back up the rope into his city to then convince them to surrender. Afterwards, he became the official commissar of the Mongol army and was sent ahead in order to convince other towns of the benefits afforded to those who surrendered without a fight. Clearly, the people's hearts were open to new leadership. Further miscalculations enabled the invaders to enter even deeper into foreign territory. The opposing general proceeded to bring the Khan to a parlay. The Jin played at showing weakness, attempting to lure the Mongols into a trap, one in which the Chinese would outnumber them ten to one. The Khan's spies informed him of the plan in the middle of the piecemeal. Proving that they were better actors than the Chinese, he pretended to take the bait, walking out of the negotiations mid-meal and attacking at dawn. This was the outcome that the Chinese wanted. They believed that the Khan had seen their supposed weaknesses and had taken the bait. Fully formed, however, the Mongols overwhelmed the Chinese with barrage after barrage of arrows, combined with lightning strikes by Mukwali, the lead general for the war. Immediately, the Jin defenses fell with their cavalry succeeding in trampling their own infantry. The Jin retreated and reformed, but they were not prepared for the tactics of the Khan. Their generals falsely believed that they had spent their lives learning the tactics of their enemies, but now they were experiencing the changes that Genghis had instituted for the first time. Prior to this, the Mongols would always stop and enjoy the spoils of victory. The Khan's army just kept coming. Four more battles in rapid succession all went against the Jin. 
To his credit, Shi Shun, the general for the Jin, realized that the emperor's strategy was a complete dud, and from 1211 on switched to fighting a guerrilla war of attrition. Although it was the right decision, it appeared to be a decision that abandoned the Jin people to their fate. No longer having the Chinese army between them and the invading Mongols meant that the peasants were easy prey. Historian Frank McLinn attempts to explain the insane loss of life during this period by revealing to us that nine years later, travelers reported the fields of carnage were still covered with bleached bones. In another gruesome description, McLinn writes about a feigned retreat by Jebe to lure the defenders of Shu Yung Shan in the following way. As one unit was attacked, the Jin would send reinforcements, which in turn were eaten up. It was said that the corpses piled up like felled trees. A significant portion of the blame for these defeats rested on the shoulders of the Jin Emperor. He failed to take his opponent seriously, and did not even summon the militia to support the standing armed forces. His overestimation of his own forces and underappreciation for his enemy were evident in the letter he sent to the Khan, claiming, Our empire is like the sea. Yours is but a handful of sand. The emperor was given a second chance when, in December of 1211, the Mongols retreated home with their loot. The Jin regained most of the cities that had been taken. The traditional slaughter that always followed the Khan had done little in the face of the huge Chinese population. Tens of thousands killed in China were but a drop of water in an overflowing bucket. The Mongol horde returned on the other side of the Chinese kingdom in 1212. Jebe invaded the northeast of Manchuria in an attempt to inspire an uprising. Once again, using the tried-and-true method of encouraging others to act as your boots on the ground. It worked, and the Jin became besieged from all sides as the Tangrut now decided to exact revenge for the Jin failing to come to their aid against the Mongols years earlier. An ironic decision to help the Mongols as punishment against those that had refused to help you against the same Mongols. To make matters worse, the central portions of the kingdom were at this moment experiencing famine. In the fall of 1212, Genghis himself returned with actual siege engines built by Chinese engineers. Another benefit of the Khan's tendency to absorb those individuals that could prove useful to him. The Jin were so stressed that they began to pardon criminals that were willing to join the armed forces. In November of 1213, the Khan offered peace terms to the emperor. It was unwisely rejected, triggering a new round of military defections to the Mongols. The absence of leadership resulted in warlords taking over entire towns and selling the people as slaves. This is another reason why it's so difficult to govern areas that you conquer. Winning a battle allows you to keep your forces together. But in order to protect what you have conquered, you have to thin those same forces, leaving them vulnerable to assault. The United States learned this firsthand during the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. Things got even worse for the Jin when their military commander Shi Shung went rogue. Angry at the handling of the war and likely suffering PTSD from his stint as a guerrilla commander, Shi Shung killed the emperor's messenger who had been sent to summon him back to the capital. He followed that up by murdering a city garrison commander, whom he had invited over for strategy talks. Finally, as an encore, the Jin commander rushed to the gates of Peking, the capital city located where Beijing is today, claiming that the Mongols were hot on his heels. As the Jin opened the city to their comrades, Shi Shung slaughtered them, seized the emperor, and had him summarily killed. Shi Shung was now the self-proclaimed regent of the empire. His reign didn't last long. One month in, he defeated a Mongol force outside of Peking. But the Khan didn't know how to stop until he was victorious. The two sides clashed again a second time 
and the Mongols won a slight victory. For the third coming together, the alien Shishung sent his subordinate with orders to defeat the Mongols or die. The Mongols won a convincing victory, and that general, Cao Chi, rushed back to Peking before the news of his defeat arrived. Cao surprised Shishung in his personal chambers and had the regent beheaded. The newest emperor, Song Song, attempted to then sue for peace. But the offer was unkind to the Mongols. Genghis left 5,000 men to maintain patrols of all roads leading to the capital. He then split up the rest of his forces to conduct a campaign of destruction throughout the lower Yellow River region. The belief was that it would turn the Chinese people against their new emperor, as he would be powerless to stop the devastation. I always have a hard time understanding this branch of the Hearts and Minds Doctrine. In the Second War with Iraq, the U.S. began the campaign with Operation Shock and Awe, a nighttime bombardment designed to intimidate the Iraqi people into standing down during the coming invasion. But it's hard to get the people on your side after you have bombed their wastewater treatment facilities. Your promises to rebuild the facilities don't pass the mind portion of the strategy when you reveal that your plan is to rebuild it years after the fighting ends. The Jin's 36,000 men could have easily broken through the small 5,000-strong regiment that the Mongols left behind. But the Chinese were now wary of a trap, and instead maintained their defensive positions. This scorched earth marched to the river, leveled cities, and destroyed productive fields. Yes, it showed the people of China that the emperor wasn't capable of protecting them, but also showed that the Mongols were willing to destroy their food supplies and abandon them to starvation. The forces, led personally by Genghis, were the most destructive of the groups dispatched. Over the next year, he sacked and leveled 86 towns. Seven legitimate cities, each with a population of more than 100,000, had been captured by the Khan. In 1214, the Mongol army returned to the gates of Peking with thousands of captured animals weighed down with loot and a plethora of Chinese slaves. As he returned to Mongolia for the summer season, Temujin opened peace talks, demanding that the emperor accept the demoted rank of king. When it was refused, the Khan sent the following message. The whole of Shandong and Hebei is in my possession, while you have only Peking. God has made you so weak that were I to molest you further, I don't know what heaven would say. I am willing to withdraw my army, but you must give me something to quell the clamorings of my generals. After months of consideration, peace was finally agreed to. The emperor agreed to have his daughter marry the Khan. 3,000 horses would be sent to the Mongols, as well as 100,000 gold bars and 300,000 yards of silk. The peace, however, would not last long. The emperor immediately moved his capital south to Kaifeng. The city offered more protection, as it had a perimeter of 120 miles with strong walls and a series of moats interspersed with gardens and orchards that would be perfect for ambushing attacking forces. The Chinese people, however, viewed this strategic move as desertion, and their allied steppe Katan tribe mutinied. Worse, Genghis Khan viewed the move as a breach of the treaty and resumed the war just months after it had supposedly ended. Samuka was tasked with taking Peking, in his analysis, prior attempts to defeat the city, now known as Beijing, were riddled with mistakes. Twice before, the Mongols had broken through the walls but were repelled once inside the city. McLin succinctly captures the challenge he faced, stating, Medieval Zhongdu occupied the site of the southern section of modern Peking, but had a fortified perimeter of 30 miles, with 12 gates, 40-foot-high walls of baked clay topped with crendulated brick battlements and 900 battle towers, three concentric moats, and most baffling of all, four smaller fortress cities outside the city walls 
but linked to the metropolis by a system of underground tunnels. Each of these was one mile square, had two gates, was fortified with towers and moats, and contained a granary, arsenal, and treasury of its own. One of the problems for a Mongol force penetrating the inner city, where they would then face another walled palace complex in its center, was their vulnerability to attack from one or more of the forces in these four towns. The sheer size of China's population was another problem, as no matter how many the Mongols killed, there were always tens of thousands more to take their place, making their tasks seem like a Herculean endeavor against a mini-headed beast. Peking slash Beijing was a city of 400,000, defended by 36,000 battle-hardened veterans. Smuka had 50,000 troops assigned to him to accomplish the task. Disease had also set in among his forces. Interestingly, there is little record of major disease in Mongolian history. The instances that did occur remarkably only seem to have happened when they were besieging large urban areas. At this particular moment, they were weakened by either a horse flu or the insect-borne blue tongue disease. Feeding their own forces became difficult as the prior scorched earth tactics had destroyed land that they were now expecting to live off of. The year 1215 includes credible reports of cannibalism on both sides of the war. Friar Carpini gives the most exaggerated tale, claiming that Genghis ordered the slaughter of the besieging Peking troops so that the remainder of his forces could subsequently feed off of their flesh. Despite everything that was going on, Smuka bided his time. As hunger destroyed the city from the inside, Emperor Han Sung finally sent two armies north to save the city. The first force was routed by the Mongols along the way. The second of the two was destroyed as a result of their commander being drunk when the assault began. All the emperor's efforts resulted in were more than a thousand cartloads of food arriving to relieve the Mongols, rather than the citizens of Peking. Without relief materializing, the city broke in the hardest way possible. Commanders committed suicide, soldiers turned to cannibalism, while others decided to defect to the enemy. Kitan Shimo Mingan, one of the city's most important generals, arranged for his men to join the Khan. The defectors included China's greatest engineers. The final assault on Peking became one of the first ever battles to involve firearms. The Jin used primitive cannons and muzzle loaders, and the battle was so fierce that they resorted to melting down gold and silver for ammunition after their forces ran out of traditional shot. Eventually, the weary defenders cracked beneath the onslaught, providing a clear picture of the brutality of the Mongols. Revisionist historians such as Jack Weatherford like to point out that the world would be radically different without the Mongols. The argument nearly always begins with something along the lines of the Silk Road enabled cultural diffusion, the Mongols expanded global trade routes, and kingdoms flourished under their reign. While this is true, it's also true that the Mongols killed so many individuals that the world literally experienced a reversal in global warming as an immediate result of their action. It is easy to look at the deaths as statistics. I have no relatives in this part of the world and the ancestral timeline that I do know doesn't come close to going back to the early 13th century. Yes, trade expanded and worlds collided, oftentimes in positive ways, but it is impossible to ignore the slaughter that continually followed the Khan's people. The world and its history are both gray, and each side needs to be accounted for. The Mongols weren't purely brutal savages without reason. They had thoughts as to why they would choose to embark on wanton destruction. But having reasons doesn't mean that it's right. Each of the individuals that suffered in Peking had intrinsic value, loved ones, and were contributors to a major civilization, 
The Mongols snuffed all of that out. The sacking lasted an entire month. They tore down temples, set the imperial palaces on fire, and raped tens of thousands. Reportedly, another 60,000 virgins in the city of 400,000 committed suicide by jumping from the city walls. The death toll is estimated at 300,000 on the low end and more than a million on the high end. To this day, the Chinese have an aversion to this era of their history. In 2020, a French company was forced to close up their museum in the Chinese city of Nantes after the PRC government demanded the removal of the words Mongol, Empire, and Genghis Khan from an exhibit about the events of the 13th century. After letting the destruction of the former capital sink in, Genghis Khan once again offered peace, imploring the emperor to renounce his traditional title and accept the role of king of Henan. The rejection once again resulted in an invasion of the Yellow River Valley. The need for that re-invasion occurred as the Mongols had never settled the conquered territory. The men that came down from the north were not settlers. They were there purely to fight and take resources back to their homes. There was never an attempt to govern. Like a plague of locusts, they descended on an area, destroyed, and then left during the hot summer months, which did not suit them. McLinn refers to it as a miracle that the Jin did not collapse at this point. Sensing weakness, incursions by the Song, Tangroot, and their own peasant uprising via a militia that called itself the Redcoats, began in 1215. Although he continued to negotiate through 1217, it was becoming increasingly clear that a total victory for the Mongols was within their reach. The Khan himself described the present situation as a hunt. We have taken all the deer, he said, and there's only a rabbit left, so why not let it go? It was during this year that the Mongols began to act as though they owned some of the land that they had conquered. Mukwali was installed as a viceroy and was given the task of governing their new provinces of China, a land that they had spent the better part of the decade destroying. He quickly put conquered bureaucrats to work as the Mongols themselves had no experience governing sedentary peoples, nor did they have a writing system. You can imagine, however, how difficult it was for the previous massacre-happy Mongols to win the hearts and minds of the locals. Malakwi's seat of power was in the northeast, in present-day Manchuria. The challenges continued to build as the war between the Mongols and the Muslim Khorizmian Shah would break out in 1219, sapping focus and manpower away from the Jin campaign. That war will be the focus of our next episode but our focus is on the Jin. A war that was expanding, as wars tend to, this time into Korea in 1217, after the steppe Khitans, former allies of the Jin, sought to carve out their independent kingdom. Han Shi of the Khitan was defeated by the Mongols and retreated across the Korean border, proceeding to commit a Korean coup d'etat that included the execution of 800 Korean Buddhist monks. Never willing to let an enemy escape and recover, Macquali came after them, powering through multiple snowstorms to defeat the new Korean government. As its new rulers, the Mongols extracted an annual tribute from Korea of 10,000 pounds of cotton, 3,000 bolts of silk, 2,000 pieces of gauze, and 100,000 sheets of paper. This collection of seemingly odd items gives us interesting insight into what the Mongols were after. Remember, this is a civilization that still regarded itself as nomadic. They produced virtually nothing of their own, except what was useful to a lifestyle that purely consisted of herding, fighting, and reproducing. Their blacksmiths would always be limited in what they could produce because of their constant need to pack up their shop to march to the next location. While most conquerors of the time wanted precious metals, gems, or human slaves, 
the Mongols were already extracting untold riches from the Chinese campaign. The study of modern economics had not yet been invented, but one has to wonder about the inflationary pressures that such conquests had upon the steppe peoples. The desire for cotton and gauze was likely related to their war effort, and a desire for bandages. The demand for paper showed that the savages of the steppe understood the value of reading and writing, even if it wasn't commonplace among their people. In short, the Khan was rapidly building a civilization from the ground up. By this point, it was becoming clear to everyone involved that the Jin Emperor was going to lose the war. The Song Dynasty in southern China failed to prioritize their own long-term survival against their immediate desires for revenge. In 1208, three years before Genghis Khan had invaded the Jin, the Song had been defeated in a series of battles by their northern cousins. As part of the peace deal, tribute was being extracted from them on a monthly basis. The Tangrut, Jin, and Koreans all begged for assistance from the powerful Song Dynasty. Their pleas, however, fell on deaf ears in the south, and sensing a chance to punish an enemy, the Song joined the Mongols in 1223. Getting the proud Song to join the cause, however, wasn't easy. Macaulay, fully in charge of the Jin campaign at this point as Genghis was busy in the Middle East, had begun courting the Song in 1217. A mix-up occurred when the Song were expected to send a delegation. After failing to appear, the envoy spoke with what Macaulay believed to be sincerity. Accepting the explanation for the slight, the Mongol warlord sentenced the ambassador to the steep penalty of chugging six large glasses of wine. Macaulay explained the tenets of wine diplomacy by stating, if they get drunk, they are of one heart with us and no longer different. Even though diplomacy worked and the song approached from the south, Macaulay would spend the majority of the next few years crisscrossing northern China to destroy city after city. The challenge, besides the fact that he was outnumbered at all times and fully cut off from reinforcements, was that every garrison that he destroyed resulted in a wider scattering of guerrilla forces throughout the Chinese kingdom. Consistent success was granting Macaulay the reputation of an invincible general. But that success wasn't bringing him any closer to finishing his assigned task. Early in 1222, Macaulay requested to be relieved of command due to exhaustion. He had successfully taken 72 fortresses in China. The Khan denied the request telling others to let him not return until he has taken more. The cracks that emerged in the command structure inevitably had a negative downward effect. In the now-rebelling city of Fengxing, Macaulay failed to bend the city to his will after a month. The Tangrut came through with his request for reinforcements, but their popular commander was killed early in the siege. The treacherous Tangrut perhaps sensing Macaulay's inter-doubts, broke away, leaving Macaulay to ask out loud, does this mean I have come to my end? He again asked to be relieved of command, and Genghis Khan once again refused to remove him from the field. After which, his words became as though they were prophecy, as he became ill and died after marching across the Yellow River in preparation for yet another new Jin offensive. Macaulay was 53 years old and had earned a reputation as a legitimate military genius. He still remains the only Mongol general to have never lost a battle, and his success enabled the steppe people to successfully fight simultaneous wars on two fronts, something that Napoleon, the Germans, and the United States have failed at. Macaulay had adapted his steppe forces to win battles on foreign terrain that was not conducive to their horses. He had successfully incorporated siege engines, and had even won battles where the enemy had naval support, something unheard of in landlocked Mongolia. Still, he was never able to deliver a knockout blow to the enemy, and the war ultimately outlasted the man. 
the territories that Macaulay had gained went into open rebellion. The Tangroot refused to fight the Jin anymore, Korea overthrew the Mongols, and the Jin became emboldened. They made peace with the Song in 1224. Macaulay's son Bol and his brother Dai Sun were given the task of once again bringing northern China to heel. Bol wasn't up for the job, twice having to personally go into Muslim lands to seek out the Khan's advice. In his absence rose the Mongol legend of Shi Tianzi. He first appears in the historical record after scattering the Jin army with a surprise attack with a significantly smaller force. The Song had now switched sides in the war and joined with the Jin, but Tianzi routed the forces arrayed against him. The Song were so overwhelmed that they set a firebreak between them and the Mongols, burning their own land to place some room between them and the horde. It didn't stop them. Tianzi rode his men through the fire and annihilated the enemy, executing the Song commander. It was the Song that now became the focus of this ever-expanding war. Bol succeeded in luring out their main force in 1227 by leading them on a feigned 15-mile retreat. As was their custom, he sprung the trap once the Song's horses were faltering. The Mongols were learning on the job, and after Bol returned to the city, he refused to execute the local commander on the grounds that he was a popular local figure. His father likely would not have made the same calculus. Understanding that the leader's death would make the local population harder to control, Bol instead appointed the man as governor of the province. Once again, the pendulum was swinging towards the Mongols, and the major players again switched sides to ensure that they were on the victorious end. The internal fighting across northern China would continue for the better part of the next decade. The campaign would not restart in earnest until after Genghis Khan's death in 1217. His successor and son, Ogadai, would restart the invasion in 1229. The death of the Jin Emperor in 1234 finally ended the Jin Dynasty. It had been 23 years since the original invasion had begun. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.